Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Good morning. Happy Easter. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers entrusted in you, they trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. The Lord, let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Praise be to God. Well, that's an uplifting Easter text, isn't it? I mean, I'm the one who picks them, so you would think I might do a little better job than that. Um, (laughs) I I love beautiful things, and I hope you do too. There's a reason that people are artists. Human beings are artists. We, We are artists because our God is an artist. Our God created the world around us. All you have to do is really go and look out at the world, look out at nature to appreciate and understand our God as an artist. And it's because we're made in his image, it's because we were made to be like God, to, to reflect him in the world, that we are artists. People create the most beautiful things imaginable, right? People create such incredible stuff, which is honestly why bad Christian art is the worst, right? When, when Christians make bad art, it's, it's worse than anybody else making bad art because our God is beautiful and we ought to reflect his beauty in the world. We ought to reflect everything that is good and beautiful about him and we ought to pull no stops. It's why we want to do everything we do as a church with excellence, not because we want to make our name great or we want people to praise us or think that we're awesome, but because our God deserves our absolute best at all times. He deserves us to put everything that we are into what we do, to reflect his excellence and to do what he does as well as we can. And so we ought to be about making great art, church. Like Christians ought to be making the best art in the world. And if you go back some centuries, you'll see that Christians were doing just this, right? (laughs) Centuries ago, Christians were making, they were leading the world in art. I I have this dream of retiring and just traveling the world and touring cathedrals. Just go Google, like, greatest cathedrals or most beautiful cathedrals. I mean, they, the cathedrals of the Middle Ages, of the medieval times, are just fabulously gorgeous. They're amazing. And I think they're honestly more beautiful because of the work that it took to make them. Some of these things took six, seven hundred years to build, to get stone on stone and to fashion everything just perfectly and just right. And 
I, I, I have this great desire to go. But cathedrals are so beautiful. They are what they are because those who designed them, those who were building them, were doing them in order to reflect the glory and beauty of God. If you walk into a medieval cathedral, you know that the planners and the builders of this wanted you to walk in and get a sense of the transcendence and the glory and the beauty of who God is. They wanted you to walk in and be blown away. We lose that with some of our warehouse churches today where we're just, we're just about packing as many people as we can into a space so that we can be together. And, and we've lost the sense of, of the reason for the beauty of churches. A few years ago, a friend of ours got married in Tucson, and uh, they got married at this Catholic church out in the desert. And it was the most beautiful building I have ever walked into. And it was just gorgeous, amazing, and set in this desert setting that at the time of year was just totally in bloom. And the building complemented the landscape, and you felt like when you were walking into this place, you weren't walking into somewhere that was imposed upon nature. You were walking into something that was an extension of the desert and the beauty around it. That's what a church ought to be. Right? That's what a building that glorifies God, that represents God in a community ought to be. It ought to be an extension of the beauty of nature around us. And we ought to walk in and just be breathtaking with the wonder and glory, not of the architects, not of the pastor, certainly, not of the leadership, not of the people, but of the God that the building is meant to honor and glorify. I love architecture. I love beauty. I love art. And, and I love Christ. I love Christianity because it's the religion of beauty. It really is. I mean, it, our whole faith is built around a God who for no other reason than for love chose to become a human being and die for us and rise again for us. And the beauty of our God's love, the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus is what we ought to center our lives around. That's, that's what draws us together into this faith of Christ, into this Christian faith. Christianity ought to be the religion of beauty and we ought to be making the most beautiful things on the earth because we represent the most beautiful faith that there is the faith that says God loves you so much that he chose to walk in your shoes, die for you, and to overcome and defeat death on your behalf. And there's nothing you did to earn it. There's nothing you could do to warrant it or to merit it. God did this on his own just because he loves you. This is the beauty of the Christian message. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the beauty of Easter Sunday when we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's going to seem counterintuitive then to go to this Psalm 22, this dark, lamentful psalm to see the beauty of the resurrection. But hang with me here. On the day that Jesus was crucified, he hung on the cross. And according to Mark chapter 14, or Mark chapter 15, the last words Jesus utters on the cross are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a lot of us puzzle over those words. What does it mean? Did God really like turn his face from Jesus? Did God really abandon Jesus when he was on the cross? Like theologically, what does this mean? And honestly, I think all of that misses the point. When Jesus was on the cross and he uttered those words, he was singing a song. 
How many of you love music, right? I hope you love music, right? And if you love music, then music can touch a part of you that nothing else can. Music can express emotions that you couldn't express in any other way. You think about the songs that you love or the songs that really move you. Or even the last song we just sung, How He Loves Us. And just singing tear-filled, He loves us, He loves us, He loves us. Such simple words, and yet they reach down into my soul. They reach down into my heart because it is a declaration I need to sing over myself. It's a declaration I must remember that my God loves me. Music touches us in a way that nothing else does. And when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a song of his people, a psalm. The Bible has a song book right in the middle of it, the Psalms. Psalm is just another word for song. These are the songs that the people of God have sung for thousands of years. And Jesus, in his anguish on the cross, as he's approaching death, as he knows this is the end of his body, Jesus cries out with the song of his people, Psalm 22. This isn't about the theological questioning of whether God turned away or whether God abandoned Jesus. This is a good, faithful Jewish boy at the point of death crying out with a song that touches him deep within his soul and wanting the people to know, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. It is the declaration of Jesus that right now on this cross, as I am bearing the weight of the world, as I am dying the, the, the most painful death imaginable, this is how I feel. And he wants the people gathered at the cross to feel and understand what he is experiencing in the way that he's experiencing it. So he cries out with this song, Psalm 22, which the people around the cross would know. They're good Jewish people. They've been singing the Psalms in their synagogues for years. They've grown up on this. They have the songbook memorized. They know what Jesus is saying when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus does what so many of us would do in his moment of deepest anguish. He reaches in and he pulls from within himself something that touches his soul, something that expresses the grief and pain that he's feeling. And so as those people who are gathered around the cross hear this, they recognize the words and they know what Jesus is saying. So let's look at this psalm. Let's look at this song that Jesus quotes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breaths. I was given over to you at birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help me. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. 
For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. Can you hear the accusation in those words? You know, we, we within the Christian church, we have a hard time imagining speaking like that to our God. It feels disrespectful. And yet the Psalms are littered with episodes like this, with episodes like people crying out to God, calling on him, being real about their pain, being real about their struggle, being real about their distress, because they know that their good God can take it. Because they know that God is not going to smite them for being honest about what they're feeling and how they're being. This is the people of God crying out in anguish. And you can hear in the words of David, in the words of the the person who wrote this psalm, how he's at the point of death. He sees no hope in this situation. He can count all his bones, which contrary to what some believe doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus had no bones broken. What it meant was that he was starving. He's starving. He can count all his bones because he's skinny. Now later... We would read that this is a prophecy about Jesus not having bones broken. But in the moment, what it means here is that this guy is at the point of starvation. He's skinny. He's famished. He's got enemies all around him. There is no escape and no hope. And what this person does now is look up to God and say, you put me here. I was faithful to you. I was yours from birth. I never strayed from you. And yet, this is what I get for it, God. Feel the anger. Feel the pain. Feel the despair. This is what Jesus wants people to experience as he cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the people in the world, you, God, You who were supposed to be right here with me. You who were supposed to see me through. You who were supposed to take me through all of the pain and turmoil of the world. You who promised to be there with me. God, you're not. And I'm angry about it. And we're at a point in our lives, we're at a point now in April of 2021, when a lot of people over the past year feel exactly that way about God. Feel exactly that way about all the struggle and the pain and the turmoil they've dealt with for the past year. Everybody's mourned. Everybody's lost something. And some have lost everything in the past year. And if you now are feeling this way toward God, if you resonate with this psalm because that's how you feel about the God who is supposed to be there with you, who's supposed to be there for you, then I want you to know it's okay. God loves you still. You can cry out to him. You can lay all of your pain on him. You can shout at him. You can say whatever you want to your God. The only thing you cannot do is ignore him. God would much rather have your fiery anger and your honest emotions than he would you ignore him and walk away. God can handle our pain. He can handle our anger. And I love that the Psalms are here. I love that the Psalms speak this way to God because it gives us permission. It gives us permission to be totally vulnerable and honest with our God no matter what we're experiencing in life. It gives us complete and total permission 
to speak honestly and truly to our God and know that God hears us and God still loves us and will not abandon us no matter what we're feeling and no matter what we're expressing to him. He will be there. He will not cast us out because we are angry. He will not cast us out in our brokenness if we're just honest with him, if we're just real with him. But the psalm goes on. In verses 19 to 21, But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. So here is the the writer's last plea. He's angry. He's broken. He's about to die. There is zero hope unless God intervenes. And here is the psalmist's plea. But God, help me. Please help. Help me. Just be there as you were there for my ancestors. Be there as you have been there for the people I've heard stories about. Come through for me like you came through for them, God. Please. And this is is a deep cry of anguish. This is a deep cry of hope and of help reaching out to the only one who can actually help in this situation. And a lot of scholars believe that the psalm originally ended right there. That there wasn't anything more but that that was the cry of the people of Israel. You see, the the children of God, the children of Israel, they had suffered over and over and over throughout their existence. Many times they were under the thumb of some empire or under the thumb of some ruler. They They were being taken over by other people. And they would, in their times of anguish and mourning, sing this song. And it would end there at verse 21 with the plea for help. And then they think that later on, when the people had experienced God's deliverance, that the rest of the psalm was added, what we read here. And so we get to verse 21 and we read this plea and then there's like a break. And then at the end of verse 21, we read, you answered me. This person, this psalmist has experienced the victory of God. This person has experienced deliverance from this hopeless situation. And we read, you answered me. I'll proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. Now, I can imagine that those people gathered at the cross the day that Jesus died, his friends, his family, those who love him deeply, Those who followed him as their rabbi, who knew him as their Lord and master. Those who hoped that he was the savior of Israel, the Messiah. As Jesus was hanging on that cross, I imagine that those people, as Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're not thinking about verses 21 to the end. They're not thinking about that victory part. They're thinking about the pain and the struggle. They're thinking about the turmoil and the plea to God. Maybe hope isn't entirely gone. Maybe hope is not entirely done. Maybe there's a chance that God will see this through and so we'll cry out to him and then Jesus breathes his last and hope is dead. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, is sitting there at the foot of the cross listening to her baby boy, her son, her child, the one miracle child who was given to her from birth, the one who God promised her, the the baby that shouldn't be And you can imagine Mary sitting there totally confused. Why? Why, God, would you put me through all that you put me through? 
Why would you make me pregnant before I was married so I was ostracized in my own town? Why, God, would you make me deal with raising this son of yours and feeling totally inferior and not up to the task? Why, God, would you give me this burden of burying your child if this is how it ends? If it ends with him on a cross, crying out in pain and anguish. Why, God? You can imagine the anguish of Mary's heart as she looks upon her son suffering and dying on a cross as a criminal. The only purely and totally righteous man to ever live, the very Son of God, the product of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, dying upon this cross a criminal's death. You can imagine the pain and the anguish of Mary as she hears Jesus cry out with these words of this psalm. And imagine Mary pouring over the content of the psalm, pouring over those words of the psalm, and sitting in her own son's grief and terror and pain as he suffers. And her heart is broken. And Jesus dies on that cross. And it's the Sabbath It's Friday when Jesus dies and the sun is going down and they have to get Jesus' body off of the cross before the sun goes down. Because in Jewish reckoning, the day begins at sundown. So Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. Jesus is on the cross. He's dead and his body has to come down before sundown, before the Sabbath day on Saturday. And so they're in a rush. They're in a mad rush. Mary, Jesus' mom, and all of her friends and all the followers of Jesus are like, we got to get him. We got to get him off of there. We got to get him off the cross. We got to get him somewhere. And then this guy named Joseph comes in, and Joseph says, hey, I got a tomb not far from here. You can lay his body there for the time being. And there's some relief, and they take Jesus' body down, and they take him to the tomb, but there's no time to prepare him. You see, at this time, there's a whole ritual. There are whole rites you've got to go through to prepare the body for burial. But it's Sabbath. You can't do any of that right now. And so they get Jesus' body from the down, down from the cross in a rush, and they, they carry him over this tomb, and they lay him down. And Mary is broken because now compounding her grief, she can't even give her son what he needs at his final burial. She can't even provide for him here in the moment of his final resting. And she's had to endure all of the scourge and the pain of seeing Jesus. And now she has to lay him unceremoniously in a tomb and wait to prepare his body. Wait to do the last thing she can do for her dead son. And so they lay his body in the tomb and then Saturday comes, the Sabbath comes. And the followers of Jesus and the friends and family of Jesus are gathered together. And they're mourning and they're weeping all through the day on Saturday. And then finally, darkness sets on Saturday. The sun goes down on Saturday. Now it's Sunday. Now they can start preparing. Sabbath is over. They can start preparing everything that they need. But it's too late to actually go to the tomb and prepare Jesus' body. It would be too dark. They can't actually go and do the things that they need to do for the body of Jesus. So they have to wait. So Mary and the other women, they gather the herbs that they need and they gather the ointments and they gather the wraps that they need to prepare Jesus' body and they go to bed on Saturday night. Brokenhearted, distraught, destroyed, wondering where their God is. Wondering how their God could allow this to happen to Messiah, to the one who was supposed to be the Savior. How could God let this happen? Sunday and Saturday night they sleep 
And Sunday at sunrise, they get up. The very moment that that sun begins to touch the sky above the horizon of the earth, these women rise and they're up and they're ready to go. And now it's time to prepare the body of Jesus to do the final thing they can do for their master, their king, for Mary's son. And they begin the trek out to the garden tomb. And as they're walking, the sun is rising, and you can imagine they're, they're brokenhearted and they're weeping and they're sharing stories about Jesus. They're sharing stories about the man that they knew and led, the one that they had hoped would lead them to freedom. And then they get to the tomb. And when they get there, the stone is gone. And I like to imagine that some part of Mary, Jesus' mom, some part of her begins to think about the end of Psalm 22, begins to think about the glory to come, but, but she can't let herself go all the way there yet. She, she can't let herself have too much hope yet because anything could have happened. Why is the tomb open? Why is the stone rolled away? Why, why, is, why, why is there just a black hole there? There should be a, a stone. We need to move that stone. What, why? I, I don't understand. And so Mary's there with these other women and they're, they're ready to prepare the body of Jesus and they're puzzled and they're curious. And then a man appears. A man is standing there and, and he tells them what Mary had been longing to hear. He tells them what they all had been longing to hear. He tells them the truth that Jesus had told them over and over, but they could not have believed before this very moment. That man who's standing in the mouth of the tomb tells them he's not here. He's risen. He's not here. He's alive. The man you've come to see, the body you've come to prepare, he's not in there. There's nothing for you to do. And Mary, in that moment, you can imagine, like, she's been rolling through the last words of her son, this Psalm 22, this, this psalm of anguish and of pain and of brokenness. And she's been sitting in that mourning for two days now. And she's been brokenhearted and she's been defeated. And now she remembers the end. Now she remembers, I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness. To a people yet to be born, they will declare what he has done. Then as Mary is standing there in front of this empty tomb, hearing the news from the angel that Jesus isn't there, he's risen again, he has taken up the life that they stole from him, her heart explodes in joy, remembering these words. Remembering the faithfulness of God. Remembering that God truly is good. Knowing that even death can't stop God. And that all that God had done for her and all that God had done through her and all that God had worked through Jesus was not in vain. In this moment, all of the pain and suffering was vindicated. In this moment of Jesus' resurrection, in this moment of knowing that he is alive, all of the pain and suffering took on a totally different meaning.
in a totally different light. God redeemed it all in bringing Jesus back to life. The only man to ever lay down his life and take it up again of his own power, of his own accord, of his own choosing. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. This is the beauty of the good news of Christ. Whether we're sitting in Psalm 22 in those first 21 verses where we are angry and we're frustrated and we're broken and we're in anguish and we're crying out to God, accusing God and pointing and saying, where are you? Or whether we're in that last half of the psalm and we are celebrating and we are honoring God and we are glorying in his victory and goodness, we can know that our God is good and will not abandon his people. He will not let us go. No matter where we are with him, no matter what situation we're in with him, no matter what our posture is toward our God, right at this moment, he is good and he will not let you go. Because the God who can defeat death can beat anything that's standing against you. The God who can overcome death can overcome whatever obstacle or struggle you're facing right now. And maybe you're in the middle of it. Maybe right now we are absolutely in the middle of life's most difficult crisis And I want you to know that our God is good and he's beat death for you. And he will work all things out to the good of his people, no matter what life looks like right at this moment. Our God who raised Jesus from the dead will indeed raise us as well. And when he raises us, when he redeems the suffering of our lives, we will look back and we will see that every road led to him. That every road led to resurrection. That there was never a plan to let us fail. There was never a plan for Jesus to fail. There was never a plan for Jesus to remain in that grave. There was never a plan to let those women prepare the body of Jesus. He was always going to rise again. He was always going to take his life up again. Resurrection was always going to win. And it always will. Because our God is the God of life. Our God is the God of resurrection life. He defeats death. Jesus allowed all of the evil and brokenness of the world to torment and destroy his body on Good Friday so that on Sunday he could prove he had defeated it in his resurrection. He's defeated whatever stands against us. He's defeated ultimately our own sin the things within us that turn us away from him, the things within us that sabotage our lives, he offers us freedom and new life. And all we have to do is come to him to receive it. All we have to do is lay down our lives before God and say, yes, I want your resurrection life. I want the freedom you give. I want the victory of resurrection morning. I want to know, Lord, that I am yours and that all the plans will work out well for me in the end. I want to know for certain that your life is my life. I want to know that I'm a child of God. I want to know that I belong to you. All we have to do today is lay down our sin and our pride and admit that we desperately need the resurrection life of God, that we can't make it for ourselves. We can't fix it for ourselves. We can't defeat the powers of the world on our own. We cannot overcome death but our God has. He's done it for us. All we have to do is reach out and receive it. To repent of our sin, to turn away from everything that turns us away from God, to turn away from everything that separates us from him, 
and to say, yes, Lord, I receive the work of the cross. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your new resurrection life to give ourselves to Jesus. If we today lay down our pride, lay down our sin, and give ourselves to our great King Jesus who gave himself for us, he promises us resurrection life, the same life that Jesus took when he rose from the dead. And he promises that our enemies will not stand against us forever, that the pain of this life will be redeemed in the end, and he'll lead us into paths of flourishing that we could not have imagined before. Let's pray. Good God, beautiful God, death-defeating, life-giving, resurrection power God, we thank you. We thank you for this story of resurrection. We thank you, Lord, for this psalm. We thank you, Lord, for the permission to cry out to you in our anguish and to be honest with you about where we are and what we're experiencing. And we thank you, Lord, for the promise of resurrection that redeems even the worst of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the new life that you've given us. And I pray today, Lord, is the day that we lay down our lives anew and afresh. Give them to you, Lord, and be born anew. And know, Lord, know that we have victory only through Jesus Christ. And know that nothing in this world can stand against us, not even death, if we have the resurrection power and life of Jesus living within us. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.